in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. A whole talk on that last week. I'd encourage you to, if you weren't here, uh, to listen to that. This, these talks that will follow are certainly standalone, meaning they have their own ideas and truths that are immediately applicable. But it does bring a different level of weight when you listen to these in, in sequence. And so last week we really talked about the idea of authority in general and how a lot of people have a challenge with that in our culture. And so if you recall, though, I want to just briefly say what I said last week because it's important. Before we started talking about this subject in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we spent about a month talking about this amazing love that Jesus has for us in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. We just sang about that in several areas. I don't know if you noticed some of the, the truth-telling that was going on in our songs, but we're, we're recognizing God's amazing grace, His endless mercy for us, this idea that um, even though this word sin or sinner often has a negative connotation, and I guess to a, to a certain degree it really does, the beauty of the kingdom is that God makes a way for for us to be in relationship with him through the cross. And so these words also have an incredible amount of grace connected to them if we can understand that. And so in Philippians 2, 1 through 8, this is what we talked about. We get this whole long teaching on how those who have experienced the self, selfless sacrificial love of Jesus, they should begin to display that same kind of selfless sacrificial love to others as they grow in the image of Jesus. So I want you to think about what this means practically. When we sing songs like what we just sang today, those are also songs that we should be singing in the lives of other people. So when God is, we're singing about how God is infinitely gracious with us, right? And what that means is the people who God puts in our lives, we have to be infinitely gracious with them. These, these love rhythms that Jesus shows to us are also rhythms meant to be displayed to the rest of the world. And in doing so, when we do this, we, we form a healthy rhythm, one between us and God, but certainly one that forms a foundation of healthy, joyful, lifelong relationships with people who are in our lives, both in God's kingdom and, and maybe far from it. And so the whole point of Philippians 2, 1 through 8, much like the book of Philippians, it's a book that addresses joy. That's for sure, how to have joy in all circumstances. But one of the driving themes is that one of the ways we derive joy is by being involved in meaningful relationship with other people. In verses 9 through 11, though, things begin to change. Paul is going to continue to talk about relationship, and he'll actually jump back into the people world here in a few chapters. But what we're talking about here is a different kind of relationship. In verses 9 through 11, there's a shift that takes place. And Paul now begins to talk about, once we experience the love of Jesus, one of the evidences that we actually really love Jesus. And it is in a way that is odd. I'm just going to say it straight up, or at least it might seem odd. After telling us about this amazing love and sacrifice God has shown us through Jesus, Paul immediately connects this to authority, to God's authority. Now, like I mentioned last week, in today's culture, the word authority um, is not necessarily a very well-received word. When you have talks in this room about love or talks at the coffee table, that stuff is all great, and nobody disputes or argues that. But when you begin to talk about these types of ideas, these other aspects of who God is, a lot of times people, even people who claim to love Jesus deeply, they start to move away from God because they realize that to worship God, to love God, means to love God on his terms, not our own. And that's where the division starts to happen. That can happen in our relationship, our walk with God, but also with other people. And so the talks that we have for these next few weeks begin to show us that God is an authority over the world. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. What he's saying is like, listen, it's very convenient today to say God loves us, but then to forget that one of the marks of God's love is that he's actually kind of an authority over us. He's our Lord. That's what one of the evidences of us loving God is, is that we see him as Lord. And so he makes this deep and inseparable connection 
between God's amazing love for us and his authority over us. And if you have a problem with this idea of an authority over us, you really do need to listen to last week's talk because we talked about how Jesus, we won't get into this today, but how the authority Jesus uses is always in servitude to other people. So this is not an abusive, top-down, dictatorial authority as much as it is an authority that God uses you know, the authority of God to redeem the world is shown in his desire to give his life for us. Wherever you see God's power, oftentimes it is displayed in him relinquishing it for our benefit. So we have to have a healthy understanding of that, and that's something that we talked about at length last week. But for today, it's kind of important to note that this, this segue he makes in the, first, the second chapter of Philippians, has this, this is the root of what's going on here. You have Paul saying, essentially, because God's love for us is so great, Eventually, it demands that we stop just seeing God as Savior. That's the easy part. The receivers of his love, but also as him being the Lord of our lives. What eventually should happen is there should be a reciprocity in our love. We should start living as if he's Lord. He's saying God's love is so amazing that it is actually, and this is a sentence I penned with great, careful, uh, with great kind of care. It's like he's saying it is preposterous, insulting, that people can hear about this kind of love and then turn around and snub it. Especially, especially his own people. Now, because of God's love for his son and the cost of Jesus' sacrifice, what verses like 9 through 11 teach us is that ultimately God can't let that happen. And that's the root of where we, we're kind of deriving this authority teaching. Well, it's God's desire that we would profess and follow Jesus with a willing heart. That is his ultimate desire. Paul tells us in verse 9 that one day even those who mock him will affirm that Jesus is Lord. There's going to come a day when everybody is at least going to have to acknowledge the great love and grace that, that God showed the world. And in last week's talk, we, we talked about the cow and the fly. Listen to that if you really want to get the understanding of, of how this works in the everyday rhythm of life. In today's talk, we continue to talk about the lordship, of authority of, uh, uh, lordship and authority of God in the world and in our lives. And I'll just say this again. The way you understand God's authority in your life will have a direct effect on how you experience his love in your life. This is true with most of the great truths of the Christian faith. How you understand grace is going to dictate how you experience it. How you understand love is going to dictate how you experience it, God's love. How you understand authority is going to either make you want to follow God more deeply and serve your neighbor, or it's going to make you want to walk away from him and, and embrace some form of godliness. So to get a better understanding of this, we looked at John chapter 7, where we see that these teachings, the, the great teachings that Paul gives us about who Jesus is, are not things he just made up. They're not implication teachings. In John 7... Uh, Jesus himself says this about himself. This is why we read kind of power, not paraphrasing, but there was a, a parallel text we looked at that we read in John. And what's happening here is the things that Paul is highlighting about Jesus are things Jesus has already said about himself. And it was at the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus tells a crowd with very mixed opinions, much like our culture today, about him, that, that his, teaching is about, uh, his, his teaching about himself is a teaching that comes directly from God. He links who he is to the authority of his Father in heaven. And he is saying, my Father's authority is my authority. And the driving point of that is that it is essential for us to know, believe, and trust in his authority if we want to know the will of God and experience his love. Now, here's where the dilemma comes in, or at least I say it's a dilemma, but it's not really a dilemma if we will value what we're about to talk about today. We obviously do not have Jesus sitting in front of us physically anymore. We don't have God the Father in flesh and blood before us. That was a season in the past in God's kingdom, and it is a season we will experience again in the future when God comes home and brings us back, when Jesus returns. But for now, we, we are in these, between these two end caps of Jesus' arrival and the, the church era is what we call this. So it begs the question, how do, how do we 
know who Jesus is? How do we embrace his authority? How do we know how to follow him as Lord when he's not standing in front of us anymore? In fact, this is a great argument to make here. Like, how do we know about his love? If you want a logical answer to this, well, we know about his love because I read to you uh, what Paul tells us about his love in Philippians. This is where we're going today. What we don't have is Jesus physically in front of us. We have a spirit with us. What we do have, though, is his scripture, or what is more known in modern circles as Bible. He, he has left us this so we could always have his teaching in front of us. So the point I'm making here is that until Jesus returns, to truly know Jesus means you must truly know his word. To truly understand uh, what it means to follow Christ as Lord means we have to begin taking Jesus on his own terms. We talked about that last week. And one of the primary ways we do that is by knowing who Jesus says he is by going to the source. Now, it's a scripture. This is a pretty clear truth. It is undeniable in the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about this more next week here, the evidences of this. But despite this clear truth that Jesus leaves us, there are a great many people today who profess to follow Jesus, but they have little, if any, desire to know Jesus through his word. And this creates a faith problem. And this is another example. If you're wondering how I'm connecting the dots here, how do we go from authority uh, and lordship to reading the Bible? Well, one of the greatest ways that you can reject the authority of Jesus is by staying away from his word. Because it's essentially where he says, if you want to know me and follow me, here's where you begin. But then we say, no, we don't want to do that. And this is ultimately what Paul's talking about here. It's one more way that we can profess Jesus as, as Savior, the, receive the love, but then not at, at no point try to walk with him or, or talk with him or get to know him more deeply. It's another example of people being okay with Jesus as Savior but not Lord. And the big problem here is that you cannot fully follow Jesus if you're not reading his scripture. Eventually, I've said this in sermons past, what happens is you start to worship a God that looks like you and not him. There are two root reasons, lots of expressions, but two root reasons that cause people to not read the Bible. The first is a very benevolent one. I just think uh, in my experience, and I can even tell you it's seasons of my own life, there's, it's just somewhat easy to, 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 to feel like you don't need to do this. In a somewhat benevolent way, some people just don't see it as a priority. This is especially true with people connected to churches. They might say, well, I come here, and you know, you talk about it, Anthony, and then maybe I'm involved in a community group, and somebody else talks about it with me. But the idea of actually like really following God through personal time with him, which needs to be married to these corporate times, it's just not there. Maybe sometimes people feel like they're getting it in other areas, or they like kind of the accoutrements of what the church life provides. There's friendship and relationship and great opportunities to serve, but they're, they're kind of missing the heart of the matter. But there's nothing malicious in their hearts. They're not even saying, I'm rejecting you, God. They're just saying, I don't really see why this is a priority. And, and in a benevolent way, a careless way, you might say, they just don't. And that's a challenge because what's happening there is there's a perception issue. There's, there's no perceived need for it. And that is something that I think we'll see today is not how God understands our pursuit of him. So sometimes it's just a benevolent lack of care. And I mean that in a very gracious way. Other times there can actually be a more calculated way, a reason. And this is going to be very true, I think, of a lot of what we see happening in our culture today. Um, for others, what happens is they, they just don't read it or they read it very selectively. Or we'll talk about this. They get into pet peeve issues because they know to actually take Jesus for everything he said, to follow him from A to Z, Genesis to Revelation, to look at God's work in history. What it means is they know to truly pursue Jesus like he says in Scripture. What happens is, is at, some time, at some point in that process, God is going to start calling you to be more like him. And what's going to happen is, if, especially if you have undergone the process of sanctification, meaning all of us are pursuing Jesus and growing in him, on a pretty regular basis, God is going to start calling you to think about areas of your life that might be difficult to think about. And so sometimes people say, 
I just want to go to the church party. I don't actually want to grow in Jesus because that means I'm going to have to start being different than what I am. And right now I'm an authority in my life and I want to live my life by my term, my word. And so that is a very different understanding. That is what I would truly say is really like a, it's, a, it's a rejection, an authority, a true authority issue, like on the bad side of the fence. Okay, So you have these two poles here. Both of them, to a certain degree, one is a benevolent, one is kind of a really intentional rejection of authority. With this truth in mind today, I want to really practically look at three reasons why. I want to make a case to you why it is important for us to, to follow Jesus as Lord by, by studying his scripture. They're very practical in nature, and they can be immediately applied to your life. And I'm saying this whether you have come here, maybe you're a Christian for 50 years or for like five minutes or not at all. Maybe you're, this is your first time in a church today. I don't know. But what I am saying is that the rhythms I'm going to talk to you about today are applicable to all of us. It doesn't matter where you are in your journey with Christ. Wherever you are, this stuff will matter for you or to you. So the three questions I want to ask are this. The first is kind of a natural one. Why is it important for me to study the Bible? The second is, what is the best way for me to study the Bible? And then the third one is, what do I expect? We'll be brief on this one, but nonetheless brief with a very pointed motive. What should I expect in my life when I do study the Bible? And we'll jump right in and begin with addressing the first question. Why is it important for me to study the Bible? And I'll say this very clearly. Christians should read the Bible because according to Jesus, we're seeing this again um, in Paul's kind of regurgitation of what Jesus says in John. It is the main pathway to how we can really know God. Remember, Jesus in John says, to know me is to know my father. To know my father is to know me. And these other teachings show us to know Jesus and the father means to know the word. You're not going to go anywhere where you're not going to see God's trinity directing us to who he is in the word. And we always say this when we talk about this idea of knowledge or understanding in in our, our worship environment. To know what restoration, it requires us to deconstruct a little bit of the way people understand what knowing means today in our modern culture. Because knowing today usually describes some mastery of an intellectual form of knowledge, a particular discipline of study. Very practically speaking, um, a person will say something like, I studied French for 10 years and now I know that language. They have a mental understanding of French and therefore they know it. Or somebody will say something like, listen, I, you know, I have two degrees in physics and because of that I now know physics. And this is very true. There is an intellectual or a cognitive understanding of, of these disciplines. And what it does is it gives you a kind of relationship with it. To know French is, is a relationship. But to love French might be something very different. To know physics, to pass an exam, you know, to get through college is one thing. But to love and to devote your life to the discipline of physics is an incredibly different kind of knowledge. And so in the modern world, knowing is almost always associated with the accumulation of knowledge in a particular field or issue or discipline or hobby or whatever it is. And so while knowing information like this is a good thing, even in Christianity... It is a limited understanding of no, it's a limited understanding of knowing means when you talk about it in light of how we know God. And I'll say this again in the Bible in Scripture, knowing God is much deeper than just having an intellectual or academic understanding of God. There are tons of passages that talk about. Actually, read one this week. Those who are steadfast in mind before the Lord. Uh, we're promised his peace. So please hear me. I'm not saying disconnect your mind from the faith, but I'm saying it's not just the pursuit of God with the mind that breeds a proper understanding of God. And you can really see this in the Old Testament. The great way to look at this is that while knowing God certainly includes this kind of cognitive knowledge, it's never limited to that. It always describes this, this personal, intimate, actionable, covenantal relationship with God. And you can see this very clearly in the way God speaks about his people and the way God's people speak about him. They don't refer to him as an it. 
They don't speak to him, although there are times, I guess you could say, where, where there is kind of a, a religious, a faith-based form that they approach him in. In the New Testament, this would be where Jesus says, approach God as your father, right? There's a form behind that. We can understand the nature of God as father, but not necessarily experience what it means for him to be our father. And so what happens is when you see these, these understandings in the Bible about who God is before us and us before him, they are almost always filled with personal terminology, you have God calling Israel my people, not them, that, that group down there. He's saying these are my people. It, it describes some kind of a robust love and affinity he has for them. And you see the same with Israel to God. They are calling out to their God, my God. Just, just read this, the Psalms. I mean, this is a great example where, where you have David who is essentially crying out to his personal possession, God in heaven. In the same way, think about it like this. Think about the, the head versus heart thing we're talking about here. I could refer to my son or my wife like in, a, in a, a Webster's Dictionary kind of way. This is my son, which equals biologically speaking, you know, all that whole thing. And then he's here. I can say that or I can say that about my wife. But when we, in a healthy world anyway, speak about our, those, those familiar relationships, my wife, my son, my daughters, my children, there is something much deeper than just the regurgitation of relational information in that. When I say that, or when I think about that, there's, there are things that start happening in me. There's, there's levels of emotional and spiritual and physical love connected to those, to those terms. Much deeper than just information. And so for the Hebrew, knowing God means to intimately live in the fullness of his grace and presence. I can have a son, right, or wife or kids, uh, functionally, but it's much different to actually enjoy them and for them to enjoy me. That's different. There's a fullness connected to that uh, through, through presence, the same is true with what we're talking about today. To know God means to intimately live in the fullness of his grace and his presence. It means we're invited into this experiential relationship to intimately enjoy God from the moment we know him uh, to, to, the, to the time we spend all of eternity with him. And there are several places in the Bible where both Jesus and Paul pray for us to know and experience God like this in Scripture. So this begs an interesting question. If you have a dominant theme all through the Bible of this kind of knowledge, this kind of relational knowledge, and you have like the two figureheads of the New Testament explicitly saying it, Jesus and Paul, why, why is it that this is such a common theme in the Bible? Well, there's two ways to answer this. I think the first is we could say it's an important one, right? Just being pretty direct, the, rep, the repetition of this signifies it's something substantial. But it also signifies that it might be something that we as people need to hear on a regular basis. Because maybe we don't place the amount of value on it that God himself does. Maybe the reason why this is repeated a lot is because we have a chronology in Scripture of people actually not getting this. But God in his grace saying, I need you to get this. If you want to know me, this is an important thing to, to know. So, in fact, knowing God like this is so important, the very nature of what we talked about in Philippians 2, 1 through 8, it, it's another evidence of that. If you think about this, Jesus coming to earth, which is what Philippians talks about, is God saying, hey, if you want to know me, just look, look at my son. Like, here's another way you can know me. And what's beautiful about that is he, he says the embodiment of who I am is Jesus. He's in front of you, flesh and blood. And then Philippians 2, 1 through 8, he says, I need you to be this for the people. That's what God wants. The mark of my love in you is the mark of your love for others. So you get another example where no matter where we go, God desires this intimate relationship with him. And so a teaching like this really shows us, especially when it comes to the ways we can erect, uh, reject excuse me, God's authority, what tends to happen is when we reject his authority in these areas, we actually are rejecting the relationship the authority represents. To not know God through the word means to a certain degree, and sometimes to very pointed degrees, we are choosing to not know God. And there's a strong contradiction for those of us following God when we embrace that, that behavior. 
And while a person can absolutely live in this world with an informational knowledge of God, a form of godliness, they can never fully live the way God wants them to live unless they start knowing him intimately through his son. And the way we're talking about today is by submitting some time to him, by recognizing that to follow Jesus as Lord means we have to approach him on his terms. We have to begin knowing him in scripture. So the idea behind this kind of knowing is that you don't just read, even if, you, if you're in the Bible, it's not even that you're just reading something about God. You read, we'll talk about this at the end, with the expectation that God is going to do something in your life, that he's going to move in your life. You don't just say, oh, God's a God of peace. Great, off to work. You say, God's a God of peace, and I don't really have any of that right now, and I want to have that. God, move. That's the difference between the head and the heart. The, the words actually communicate a trust and a promise. And you expect God to move in areas that you read about in him. So in the scripture, to know God simply means to have a rich, meaningful, living relationship with God. And I want to give you two super clear examples of this. We're going to step away from knowing God spiritually to, to physical levels of love. Think of this this, uh, this truth we're talking about, how many of you in here, you know, work in the garden? Any of you kind of do that stuff? Okay, like three of you do, and I'm, I'm probably with, I don't know if you're just afraid to raise your hand, but I'm with the other 97%. I grew up in New York, but if it were up to me, I would do, I tell my wife, I would jersey our front yard. I would just kill all the grass and put rocks down there. I would make it look like Jersey City, because it would be less to weed and pull. Um, I mean, I, I love to look at that stuff, but it's hot here a lot, and I don't really care for the heat. And so I look at that stuff, and I know it is alive, right? My front yard has tons of living things in it. It's got trees and grass, and go ahead and pour a gallon of bleach on the green grass, and there's a big brown spot in the middle of that. On a cellular level, we probably don't think about this much, uh, on a cellular level, the stuff going on in our yards is very alive. Both, uh, uh, both uh, when you, and now think about it like this, when we look at ourselves, we're, we're living, but we also have grass in our front yard that is alive. So on a cellular level, both a plant and a person are alive. Now, I want, here's, here's the distinction I want to make between kind of knowing that and actually experiencing it. Let's say the plants in your yard, um, this would be really weird, and you should probably talk to a pastor or leader if this is happening, but let's say the plants in your yard talk to you. Like you go home and your azalea bush is like, what's for supper? If that's going on, talk to somebody. But the point I'm making here is imagine in an imaginary world, they talk to you, right? And you're having conversation with them. And you get to this place where uh, you say to them, listen, um, I am a human, I am alive, and you are a bush, and you are alive. And I want to ask you, Bush, if, if you had the opportunity to live like I live, would you take it? Would you trade the life of a stagnant bush for the, the dy dynamic life of a human? What do you think the plant would choose? I mean, in a, in a sane way, we would say, well, especially having lived the human life, we would look at a bush and probably say that is not the type of life we would like to live, even though, even though it's a very valid form of living. Would you want a static life in the dirt? or the dynamic life that being a human offers. We would probably say that the plant would be a little bit crazy to remain a plant if it had the knowledge of living like we do. Think of this on the inverse. Um, if the plant came to you and said, listen, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I want to know, I, I want to be you, and I want you to be me. Come be the azalea, and I'll be the human. Would you, put it personalize it, would you trade the life you have now for the life of being an azalea in your front yard? Probably not. I mean, I think it's pretty fair to say the majority of us would say, no, while we recognize the plant lives, it's not really living. I want to refine the analogy here. Um, think about the, the modern medicine today, okay? Um, it's, it's very common to indefinitely keep somebody alive. We know that. You can almost pretty much do this. But there's terms even, you can see this even outside of the Christian world, where people begin to understand, well, what is the difference between living and, and quality of life, right? It's one thing to be hooked up to machines. It's another thing to be alive. 
right? Nobody would say that that's necessarily living. Or you can see this, uh, especially in the, uh, in, with very serious emotional challenges that people have. Sometimes a person can be physically alive, but emotionally or even spiritually, they can feel as if they are dead. And it creates this internal contradiction where the body is functioning as a living entity, but the, the vibrancy of life is no longer there. This is a, this is a challenge, and when we find ourselves in those positions, especially if you've ever been in a place where maybe you've struggled with uh, depression or maybe you've struggled with, uh, you know, where you are in life and where you want to be. This is a common narrative for all of us. There is probably not a single person. And I can even say this for myself. I've had seasons in life where they just felt blue. Right. There is something eternally that feels off about that. And I would make this strong argument here that the same happens in the spiritual world. There is a difference when you know God, but there's a difference between knowing God and actually really knowing him. That's the difference we're trying to highlight here. When we talk about knowing God so intimately that it leads to fullness, where it leads to movement and truth and power and grace. This is the, the expression that we read in scripture quite a bit. John 10.10, 10, this is where our value comes from. I promised this earlier. Jesus says, listen, when we talk about our third value, uh, excuse me, our second value, spiritual vitality, what that means is, we want to create a church body where people have life and they have it to the full. That's what Jesus says in John 10, 10. We don't want to just have a Sunday hour where people get together. We don't want to make you cry from worship. I don't want to just wow your ears up here. We want there to be meaning in these things. But at the end of the day, what we want all of this to do, your community groups, our service in the community, the relationships you have with other people, we want this to create a fullness that causes you to love God more deeply. Because this is what Jesus says he wants for us. In fact, he says it is central to the Christian faith. And here's why. The life that Jesus offers us means we can live in his peace and joy. It means we can live in his victory and his confidence. No matter what we face in the world, this is the big picture of Philippians. Circumstances matter, but not enough to shape your joy. That's what Jesus says. I matter enough to make joy in all circumstances. Don't let the circumstance drive you. Let me drive you is what he says. And so when we begin to understand even this, this flippant statement about joy, this is a comment that we get from Scripture. I didn't make this stuff up. In fact, I was the majority of my life not a Christian. I'm not even a Christian longer than I have been a non-Christian at this point. And I can tell you joy like what Jesus talks about. I had no idea what that meant until I started to know about what that meant in his word to experience it. So a lot of times in our world, we throw the Bible under the bus. But it's convenient to do that, especially if you've received a partial truth of who Jesus is that you really like. You love his joy, but not his authority, right? This is a perfect example of what I mean. It is important to know God through his word because it, is, it does far more than just shape the mind. Yes, the mind produces a steadfast peace, but the heart is what actually transforms the steadfastness to experiencing the peace. And we know, no matter what's going on in our lives, that, that there is something more significant than what is going on in our lives. There is the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God who empowers us for this life and the next. So you see, one of the biggest, easiest ways we make mistakes in the Christian faith is when we choose to reject Jesus' authority by not reading his scripture at all. One of, one of the authority statements he makes is you can have joy, right? You can have my joy. That's an authority statement. If Jesus couldn't back that up, then we'd all be in trouble. But when we don't delve into his word, we don't know that. Another problem we can make is if we are reading the Bible, maybe we just see it as an exercise in information consumption. You know, we just reread about you and we're like, yeah, that's great, but life still stinks, you know. Knowledge was never meant to be the end game, not the end game, hear me. The pursuit of knowledge is condoned in Scripture, but it's not condoned as the end game and why we study the Bible. It was meant to foster genuine life transformation and a deeper love for God. 
And that transforms us into the image of Jesus. And so the bottom line in answering this question is, when we understand the importance of reading the Bible, there's an authority issue here. But the, re- the receiving of authority, seeing God as Lord, seeing Jesus as Lord, what that means is, as we approach the Scripture, the Scripture informs the head. The head informs the heart, and the heart eventually informs the hands to action. That's what a full understanding of who God is. I know His peace. I have experienced His peace. And I now show and spread His peace to others. That is the fullness issue. It is the experience and the, and the passing on of these things. In fact, I would, I would say even more strongly, one of the evidences that you truly know God, like we're talking about here, is when the words of the Bible become more than spiritual nonsense. Um, and sometimes they are that. Jesus has these parables where he's like, eyes are closed. Ears are open, but they're not hearing. This is a, this is a thing where, where you can maybe talk to somebody or maybe you've experienced it. You know, you read something very clear in the Bible of, of, of a way that God desires us to live. And people who both love and don't love God are like, no way, never going to happen. Spiritual nonsense, right? Or when, when Christianity is some kind of an abstract religion. And what I mean by that is, it's kind of like easy to not be nailed down on anything because that's a very you'll nail yourself down to what you want to do. You don't necessarily nail yourself down to becoming more like Jesus. But I would say in the pursuit of God through the Bible is the Bible comes alive when those words on the paper, they begin to encourage you in trial, when they begin to pierce you in sin. Think about what we talked about today. And you recognize, man, I, I make a lot of mistakes, but what God said, I know. And that's why I've dealt with that at the cross. You. That changes. It starts removing things like guilt and shame from your life. You start saying, yeah, I made a mistake, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to fix this and make this right. I know your grace, and I'm going to labor towards not making this error again. It's when we begin to know God in intimate ways and help others see that. This is the powerful nature of why we study the Bible. It's not just an exercise in, in academia, although it can certainly be that. It leads to a transformational life. You don't get to joy like we talked about in chapter 1 unless Jesus is working out his joy in your life. And I'm just telling you, you don't know about joy, the depths of it, unless you read the source of where the joy comes from. That's why Paul is not making stuff up. He's quoting Jesus. He's essentially practicing what he preaches here. So the powerful nature of this truth, why do I study the Bible? We study it because if you truly want to know God as a believer, or you're somebody pursuing Jesus, you're saying, I got some questions about him, but I don't believe yet. If you want some of those answered, you have to start there. The powerful nature of that truth leads me to the second question I want to share with you today. Um, what, What does it mean, or what is the best way for me to study the Bible? Well, in Christianity, a balanced truth diet can be achieved by regularly reading a gospel and another book or topic of your choice. And so to explain this truth, let me jump into the realm of the biological for a moment. How many of you know what scurvy is? Any of you? One of you is like, I got it right now. I don't eat any any oranges or nothing. Scurvy is a malnutritional disease. We don't really see it much in our culture anymore, right? But if you were to read ancient maritime works, you'd see, like, the English really struggled with this. Somewhat ironically, the problem of scurvy was, was solved by drinking a lot of rum with lime in it. They thought the rum was the solution. But the truth is it was all the lime they were squirting it into it on boats, right? So you can see this is an interesting disease. It's a totally avoidable one. You know, very simply put, uh, unlike other diseases which can creep up on you and you don't know about them, uh, scurvy, you know, just take a vitamin C pill and you will likely never suffer from it in your life. It's caused by a, a, a lack of vitamin C. And it starts out rather mildly. You're lethargic, a bit slow and tired. However, left unchecked, this can actually kill you. And so the solution is you balance your diet. Now, although we're talking about the effects of physical malnutrition here on the body, in the same way, I want to apply the spiritual parallel here. 
In the same way you do or do not study the Bible, uh, which God says is food for your soul, it's vitamin C for your soul, it's going to largely dictate the health of your soul. So, for example, you have some people who don't read it at all. They're the, the, the benevolent, you know, I don't care folk. And what happens there is forget scurvy. They're dying. What's spiritually, they're inside dying. Stop eating for a week and see what life feels like to you. The spiritual analogy is the same. Maybe it expresses itself in tension or stress or anger. I don't know. But when that, when that vine starts shriveling up, you start dying a spiritual death. And they're making the choice to die. It's not even like something is causing them to die. They're just saying, I'm, I'm going to die, whether they know it or not, because they're disconnecting from it. While others suffer from a different problem. They might read the Bible. This is where the scurvy comes into play. But they don't read it in a way that catalyzes growth. Uh, th- this is what I want to address this morning. You, you read it in a way that might actually be paralyzing you from growing. For example, if you ate nothing but vitamin C, you'd have a whole other problem. On, on, you know, you'd, you'd be orange, probably, is what it would look like. Right? So, so I want to give you just kind of a, a, a two-step, sim- a simple reading plan today that can help balance this. Um, and how we can approach Scripture, if we, if we recognize the why we study it and we want to know some of the how, here's a great example. Here's a good pattern. I, I would say, first and foremost, it's important to read a gospel. No matter what you're doing, to always be reading a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and to, to, to see everything that you do in, in life uh, through the lens of Jesus. And here's why. It's super common today. Uh, and by reading a gospel, I mean even if you're reading a verse a day, that'll take you literally 15 seconds, to just start there. Today, it's very common for Christians to see the Bible as an abstract set of teachings. I just touched on this a moment ago about spirituality and morality. You can hear this in the way some people reject Christianity. They say, well, it's a book of rules. And what that shows me is there's a dietary imbalance there. They misunderstand the faith. And we have to be able to explain how that's not an accurate understanding of, of the Christian scriptures or the faith that it represents. So if you come from a faith tradition like this, or you've understood Christianity to be like this, I'm converting from one set of life rules to another, then you probably don't have an accurate view of what it means to know God. Furthermore, you probably have a hard time marrying the teachings of the Bible to your everyday life. This abstract issue is a real problem because if it's too literal, it becomes a moralism. People essentially start making up stuff that isn't in the Bible. Or what is probably the more common issue we deal with today is faith becomes so abstract that it's like what Paul says, you're always searching but never finding. And then faith becomes a wobbly bowl of jello that can never be nailed down to anything. Thankfully, there's a solution here. This is why the knowing piece is important. Unlike so many other world religions that do teach some kind of abstract spirituality or some some ridiculous morality, Christianity does not. In fact, there is no other faith in the world that can rival its clarity. If you want to know how to stay away from those abusive poles, then you go not to the opinions of people, but you go to what the Bible says. 1 John 1, 1 1-5 and 14. Literal explanation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That life shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. The world became flesh, excuse me, the Word became flesh, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace. What that says to us is, if you want to know about the kingdom or Jesus or grace or faith, then you have to read the Bible. Because what this is saying here is that Jesus literally being the representation of the word shows us that we don't ever have to guess about our faith. We can actually go to the source of the faith, which we read about in the Gospels. When it comes to God, we don't ever have to wonder what he's like. He tells us who he's like. We don't ever have to wonder what it means to know him. He explains pretty clearly how we can know him. And he gives us the flesh and blood Jesus, the image of the invisible God, as well as the revelation of himself in the scripture. So the idea of not knowing God is kind of a misnomer today because God has gone to great lengths to make sure we can know him. And the word is one of the ways we do. So if you ever want to know what a person's life who is committed to living by the grace and truth of Jesus, 
what that looks like, then what you do is you go to the Bible and you look at the life of Jesus. All you have to do is look at his life and teachings and the Gospels. And that's why I want to encourage you to be in a Gospel at all, at all times. Don't just take ideas floating around the Bible without sifting them through Jesus. It'll create a different form of faith that might not be a healthy one. And this kind of makes sense, right? If we're called to be transformed daily into a disciple of Jesus, we should be committed to understanding his life and teachings by applying them to our lives. So make it a point uh, to read and reread the Gospels until Jesus takes you home. Secondly, study something that personally interests you. So you're in a gospel, and then I want to encourage you to look at something else that is not necessarily a gospel, unless there's something in the gospel that interests you, like a topic or an idea or a certain belief. Uh, maybe you're, you're struggling with skepticism now. Read about skepticism in the Bible. There's no shortage of it, right? The reason it's important to, to mention we need to do this, but also mention there's a concern with it, is because this is the place where if people are reading the Bible, this is where I think there's a greater uh, potential for a misstep. For a lot of Christians, if they're studying the Bible at all, this is how they choose to typically do it. They don't, they don't filter things through the lens of God's kingdom or Jesus. They just start drifting toward the stuff they're most interested in. Uh, and this is guaranteed to, to lead towards an imbalanced diet. What happens is, is they, they start getting into all these like pet peeve studies. And then the next thing you know, they're in this like little rabbit hole and this little idea. And they're studying a thing about the faith that actually no longer in their lives has anything to do with the faith. You can see these topical imbalances in a lot of areas. You see it in the Christians who preach all grace but no sin. You can see it in the Christians who preach all sin but no grace. You can see in the, in the, uh, th those lead to imbalanced health uh, understandings of the faith, hardness or coldness, right? Uh, sometimes it's a love disconnected from God's grace because we're actually practicing cheap grace. You can see it in people who are really, you know, concerned with generosity, but then they forget the fact that they're also supposed to be generous with other people. They realize that this is, thing, this is something people should be doing, but they're not doing it in their own life, but they're not read enough in a balanced way to, to balance it out. Theologically speaking, you can see this perhaps most pointedly in the end times studies that go on today. That's a great study. But I've met a lot of people who only read the book of Revelation and they forget there are 65 other books in the Bible informing the book of Revelation that changes things. Or you have people in a more sophisticated way. This is a strong movement today. They only read what Jesus said and read and then they discount everything else in the Bible. All of these things create isms and abuses. All of these things create spiritual forms of, of survey, dietary imbalances. And so to avoid this, you have to know there are tons of passages in the Bible that talk about knowing the whole counsel of God, understanding the balanced nature of who God is. And if we start to imbalance him, we will imbalance ourselves. And in doing so, we will imbalance the Jesus we reflect. So I would encourage you to have the guts, and I mean that, the guts to read the Bible for all it is worth, and to let it speak to every area of your life. And to have people in your life who can do the same thing. And for you to be a person in somebody else's life to do the same thing. On the contrary, if you don't, your fate is sealed in one of two ways. You either starve to death because you're not reading it at all. Or you selectively read what you like. And that is bound to cause spiritual scurvy. It's going to breed strength in an area and strong weaknesses in others. And that creates a, a problem. So work towards a balanced diet. Your scriptural affinities, whether they're moral, theological, academic, emotional, social, whatever, let those things be sifted through the life and the teachings of Jesus. And in doing so, what you'll find is you'll grow in Jesus, your knowledge, and your spiritual vitality. Say so one last thing here regarding this. One of the greatest challenges facing the, the people of God today as they seek to know God by reading the Bible is that we live in a culture. If you don't hear this, everything I said next week is going to be kind of pointless. Um, everything I say next week will be pointless. We live in a culture that is rapidly moving away from meditative reading. 
and moving towards replacing reading with three-word tweets and Facebook blurs. I hate Facebook and tweet, Twitter, but I'm not against them. I'm not against either one of them, right? I can tell you, though, what happens is, is we learn to now, we, we take these grand ideas and we can snippet them down to three words. And what I'm telling you is that this is reshaping the way people consume information generally. And what I hear a lot is, I know, what, hey, are you in scripture? Uh, uh, no. Well, why not? Well, really, I know I should be in the Bible, but I just don't read. And so that's it. That's, that's the end game for this person. They just don't read, so therefore they're going to follow Jesus without this problem. And this is a serious problem that requires a, a serious solution. Um, I don't know how else to say this, but I'll just say this. There's no other way to get around this one. If you don't believe in meditative reading, and I'm going to explain very quickly what that is in a moment, the, the complicated response to how to fix this is that you, you have to just start becoming a reader. I don't know how to say it. Um, you cannot know God without reading his word. And I've joked in the past when we talked about the Bible. You can open the Holy Bible app, which is free, and it will read the Bible to you. Like, I can go... I shouldn't say this because you remember a few weeks ago, Siri activated herself and gave a definition of the Holy Spirit down here without me knowing a phone went off. But you can say, you can say, hey, Siri, open my Bible app and it will, she will do that. And then you can click on a verse and that phone will read the, it will do everything but give you hot cocoa and tuck you in at night. That's what that app will do. All right. So you have a lot of opportunity, even if you don't like to read, to, to, to get involved in scripture. And when I say read, hear me here. I, God does not, unless you want one, God does not desire for you to have a Christian PhD. He's not saying set aside 65 minutes every day. That's not even where it starts. You might get there. But what I'm saying is if you just stop, and like even First John, uh, like I just read, if you just stop and read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and stop, that will take all of five seconds. And just think on it for like two minutes and then get up and go to work. That's what I mean. Start somewhere. Don't, don't make this a hill that can't be climbed. Make it a little molehill that you can very easily roll over and see what God does with that. Because the bottom line is, is if you want to be like Jesus, you have to know we live in, we're, we're clay in this world. And stuff is constantly shaping us, intentionally or unintentionally. We either know about it or we don't know about it. What I would say here is that culture, family, friends, worldviews, at times even our own desires, they shape us. That said, for those who say that Jesus is Lord, or those of you investigating the faith, the, the profession of Jesus being Lord means I want to be like him. And there are going to be times when the sparks fly. There are going to be times when who you are, the here, is not the there. Where Jesus is and where you are are far apart. The beauty of the Christian faith, though, is the bridge between those two spaces is grace. We just sang about that. But if you misunderstand the things we're talking about now, what tends to happen is you'll eject from the faith. Or you'll get angry at God. Or you'll get frustrated with other people. Or you'll take your Jesus ball and go home. That's what we do. And that does not create growth and knowledge in Jesus. It actually creates a regression. It's actually saying, no way, I'm going to stay like this. I'm going to be like this. And then you actually start to live in ways that might be very far from God at some point. God's desire is that you be like his son. And ironically, those of us that have made this statement, I want to know you, Jesus, we've actually agreed with that. So it's just that great space of aligning heart with what we have said. As we wrap up today, um, I know you're thinking, man, he's got one more question, but I promise it's a paragraph. Um, what should you expect to, the, to, to happen as you read the Bible? Um, very briefly, I want to say, and I hope this has already come through, what you expect from the Bible will largely shape what you get out of it. This is how we end today. You approach the Bible for head knowledge alone, like we spoke about earlier, you become a Pharisee. If you approach it with more emotional, heart-driven expectation, disconnected from your mind, you get hyper-emotionalism. Or what is perhaps the, the modern-day form of that, you get spiritual narcissism. When, when God's heart is only and all about you, it's amazing the kinds of things that God will permit in your life. It's amazing the kinds of ways he will let you live. Because at some point what happens is, is you, you become the God. It's an all about me kind of faith. And a faith that the origin of it says, no, God is all about us. That's very true. But all about us means we've got to be about other people. 
The Bible is clear, left to its own ways, we'll serve ourselves. That's usually what happens. If you approach the Bible only asking, what do I do? The hands, right? Common flavor in Christianity today. You get the social gospel. You get works-based faith. You think God only loves me when I do something. And the truth is God loves it when you do something for his kingdom. But the foundation of his love is not built on you doing something for him. Because the, the hard but gracious truth is he doesn't need us, but he invites us to be with him. Imbalanced understandings of how we approach God in the Bible create problems. You've been built head, heart, and hands. And as you grow in Jesus, you have to, you have to approach the Bible trying to understand what he's saying to you in all three areas. And these things will be held in tension with each other sometimes. Every one of us is probably inclined to a certain one. We're, we're either head, heart, or hands. I'm not saying we don't do all three, but we're likely we migrate towards one. So if you let the imbalance go, you start to have an imbalanced faith. Let God speak to you and grow you in all three areas. So make it a point today to embrace Jesus' authority by knowing him on his terms through the word. Root your life in his story. With a willing heart, bend your knee and declare that Jesus is your Lord. Don't get to Philippians 2.9 where the day comes where Jesus says, I am your Lord. I wish you would have known it earlier. Get to the place where we say, this is a big term, but I'm going to commit to figuring out what this means. Volitionally serve him as Lord. Ask him to give you guidance in that area. Serve him, right? Follow him with your mind. Experience him in him with your heart and serve him with your hands. In our community here, in our church body, and in the ways that God uniquely has wired you in your community. As we close today, I leave you with the same two questions I leave you with every week. What is Jesus saying to you about how you know him, how you see him as an authority through the reception of his word, and what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day and another opportunity to, to discuss a word like authority that has a hard edge. It does, I guess. I can't deny that, but that hard edge shows that, that it's an authority that leads to love, life, and relationship. And so, again, I stand by my guns when I say these terms that often are misconfused in our culture, they are another evidence of how you want to love us and know us, and they are another evidence of how you invite us to love and know you. So I pray, Lord, as we move into this, this kind of brief time of reflection and meditation, that, God, you would help us to know and grow in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.